It's been a good morning, hasn't it, friends? Yeah, what a blessing to be able to participate in, in something, a uh, service like this that includes a baptism, multiple baptisms. It's a great blessing. <clears throat> I attended the memorial service of a, of a friend of mine. Uh, he was diagnosed with brain cancer in October and died on February 22nd. <clears throat> and memorial services have a way of making me become very introspective. I don't know about you, but when I go to a funeral memorial service, uh, I begin to think seriously about life um, that I may not think about before the service or even after it. But uh, memorial services have a way of getting me thinking. And in this past, I, this past service that I attended, I thought about how I would manage a storm in my life like that. How would I do if I was diagnosed with brain cancer? But all of us are going to die, right? We, we are all going to face that storm someday. But between now and then, we're going to have a lot of other storms to face, some with greater intensity than others, but all of us will face storms. This is not just a reality of life, it's promised in Scripture. So <clears throat> as we are tested on and off again throughout life, we, we have this one great storm out in front of us, uh, the storm of death. And let me ask you, are you prepared for that storm? Are you prepared for any storm? How do you know that you're prepared? What would you say your level of preparedness for life's storms would be? Like, are you Boy Scout ready? Or are you like, not sure? Well, today's Bible text is a well-known story in the Gospels about a storm on the Sea of Galilee uh, and how Jesus used that storm to, to build up the faith of his disciples. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, I'll read that for you. Mark 4, 35 through 41. <clears throat> On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. I mean, just the, the drama of the situation was, is one thing, but the lessons that we can learn from this story are powerful. And I, and I hope that the Holy Spirit will allow me and you to find these lessons clearly and apply them personally. Today I want you to see that Jesus is behind the storms of life and he uses them for our good. I want you to hear that, so I'm going to say it again. I want you to hear today, 
I want you to see that Jesus is behind the storms of your life and he uses them for your good. Mark wrote this uh, story in three parts and the points of the sermon reflect those three parts. The first is before the storm, the second during the storm, and the third after the storm. Real creative, but uh, that's in fact what it is. So those are the points of my outline. Let's look at the first, before the storm. Notice in verse 35 that Mark points out a specific day. He says, on that day, on that day when evening had come, so it had been a long, full day, a particularly busy day, a day full of ministry busyness, where Jesus decided to go across the lake with his disciples. What we learn from even that introductory statement is that Jesus was interested in leaving the crowds. He went across the lake to a basically uninhabited area away from the crowds, and he went to retreat really with his, his band of close disciples. Geography is uh, important in this story. And so I'm gonna spend a little time describing the geographical elements of this story so that you'll get, I think, a clearer picture of the point. Capernaum, if you can picture the Sea of Galilee in front of you here, Capernaum is up here in the northwest corner of the lake. And where they were sailing was across and south, south towards the southeast end of the lake to a place that was generally uninhabited. Um, but beyond the need for a retreat, Jesus was actually intending to keep a divine appointment, which we'll read about in Mark 5, and which I'll preach about next week. He was intending, on, on God's timetable, to meet with a demon-possessed man in the area of the Gerasenes. But beyond that divine appointment, he had another appointment in mind, a divine appointment, an appointment with a storm, a storm that he needed his disciples to go through. And so he had two things in view here as he was traveling across this lake. The divine appointment with the man, the demon-possessed man in the garrisons, and the storm that we're going to go through to get there. So let's talk a little bit about storms on the Sea of Galilee, how storms work on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a large freshwater lake. <clears throat> it's 13 miles long, 7 miles wide. It's 690 feet below sea level, uh, making it the lowest body of fresh water on the earth. Uh, the Jordan River is primarily what feeds the lake, and then it empties back into the Jordan River, which takes its supply down to the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is 30 miles inland from the Mediterranean, and it sits atop of the Rift Valley, the Great Rift Valley, which begins at the Sea of Galilee and goes 4,500 miles south to Mozambique. And this particular Rift Valley is notorious for the steep and treacherous ravines that surround it. Uh, the Sea of Galilee's western slopes were notoriously steep and rugged, which caused sudden and violent storms to develop when the cool air of the mountains would rush down these steep ravines like funnels into the warm air that sat atop, atop the 
water of the, the lake, causing turbulent conditions. Waves have been recorded at least 10 feet high on the lake, which makes navigating in a small boat dangerous, difficult, as you can imagine. So when the boat carrying Jesus and his disciples left Capernaum, the conditions, according to the scripture, seem to be calm and ideal for sailing. In fact, Luke, in his uh, record of this same story, chapter 8, verse 23, says, they were sailing along. Sounds like they were enjoying the trip, maybe singing a tune or two with a ukulele. <clears throat> but what this means is that there was just a slight normal breeze coming off the mountain, blowing eastward, comfortably pushing this small vessel with its sails up to its desired destination. That's what they were experiencing. So the scene is set. The disciples were in the boat traveling across the sea. They had done, hundred, as they, they, they had done this hundred times, uh, but this time they had a special date with God's providence. A, a, a date that would teach them probably the biggest lessons of their discipleship lives up to this point. Now I want to talk to you about preparing for a storm. Obviously these guys didn't know there was going to be a storm at the time they left Capernaum, but Jesus did. And it says in verse 36, they took him as he was. In other words, he didn't have storm clothing on. He didn't seem to be prepared, but we know he was. He had to have been prepared, right? He's God, he's the creator of all things. He knows everything. But when we, when we know a storm is coming, what do we do? We prepare for it, right? We take an umbrella or a coat. We, we make sure our pets are indoors, if you like your pets. We cover the barbecue. You roll up the windows on your truck, so on and so forth. You prepare for the storm, right? The storms of life should be no different. We know they're coming. The Bible says they're coming. We've lived long enough to know the storms come to those who live. Are we prepared? When the weatherman says it's going to be a stormy afternoon, we prepare. When the Bible says it's going to be a stormy life, what do we do? I think we should be prepared. The good news is this, Christian friend, listen to me. God has a purpose for every storm. There are no wasted storms in the Christian life. We, we covered this, I think, clearly when we studied Romans 8 last year. The focus of this particular aspect of Romans 8 was found in verse 28. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, let's substitute storms, all storms work together for good. A storm is a thing. All storms work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What good? What is the good of the storm? Well, Paul tells us in the very next verse, Romans 8, 29. What does it say? We are, the storms are, Jesus plans that these storms in life conform us to his image. They make us become more like Jesus. When you go through a storm, you show up on the other side more like Jesus than before the storm began. That's always the case. That's the point of storms, according to Paul in Romans 8, 28 and 29, to be conform to the image of Jesus. And so here in this story in Mark 4, we read that Jesus, look at verse 1, was the one who led them into the storm. Surprise, surprise. 
Guess who led them into the storm? Jesus. Guess who leads you into the storms of life? The same guy, Jesus. That might shock those of you who think that if God truly loved us, he would rather protect us from storms, right? That's how we might think. But he actually is behind the storms of life, using them to accomplish his good pleasure and our good in our life. He designs storms for that very purpose. He wanted to teach his disciples about who he was and what role he should play in their lives. So he took them into a storm. He does the same thing for us. He leads us into storms to accomplish his purpose. Recently, we just finished studying Psalm 119. And when I began studying Mark 4, these verses here in Psalm 119 came to my mind. It says this in verse 67. Before I was afflicted, before I went into the storm, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Huh. Imagine that. And then verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted. It was good that I was in the storm. Why? That I might learn your statutes. How did the psalmist change into Christ's likeness? The storm. That's how he did it. That's how these disciples in the story in Mark 4 became more like Jesus. That's how you and I become more like Jesus, by going through divinely appointed storms. If the storms of life are, in fact, divine appointments, it would be good to remember the character of God in the matter as you enter those storms. His goodness, his grace, his mercy, his tender love. These things are good to remember. They actually are things that help us prepare for the storms that we will inevitably face. So there you have Mark's description of life before the storm. How about life during the storm? Well, this easy breezy drift across the lake came to a sudden and ferocious end, didn't it? Whoever was on the musical instrument stopped quickly. When the wind turned into hurricane blasts of death, everything changed. Mark called it, look at verse 37, a great windstorm. That word great is actually mega. Mega. It's a mega storm, according to the original language. And this mega storm, according to Luke, descended on the lake with force, which communicates the wind was rushing down these steep ravines like a funnel onto the western side of the lake with great force, so much so that Matthew, how he recorded this same storm, he used the word seismos. It's a Greek word, seismos, where we get our word seismic. He was trying to describe the ferocity of this storm so much so that he said it was earthquake-like. It was a massive storm. There's two different ways that you can handle storms. Two different ways that this story describes that people handle storms. The first is the way we see the disciples handling the storm. How'd that go? <clears throat> let's, let's read here. A great storm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was filling, and they got petrified, panicked, terrified, and ran to Jesus and said, Don't you care that we're dying? How did they respond? They panicked. 
The storm was raging, the waves were breaking over the top of the boat and swamping it, and the disciples' reaction? Panic, fear. I think I would have been with them on that. The fact that the disciples, who were experienced fishermen, who were very familiar with the Sea of Galilee, came to wake up Jesus and ask for help reveals how serious this storm was. These guys were pros. They knew what the Sea of Galilee could dish out, and this was beyond that. As they woke him, they asked him if he cared for their safety. Aren't you concerned that we're drowning? Was their question. The response of the disciples to the storm sounds a little familiar to me. When a storm lasts longer than I think it should, and I've prayed in my mind sufficiently about the storm, I begin to wonder where God is, begin to ask, do you care that I'm drowning here? Can you see what's happening here? Are, are you still asleep, God? Please wake up. Interestingly, as long as the storms of life are small enough to handle, we're fine, aren't we? If it's not too big of a storm, I'm, I don't need God. Don't need, I can handle this one, Jesus. Thank you very much. But when the mega storm comes, we panic, don't we? And we reveal the true depth of our faith. We begin to question the Lord's love. Lord, if you really cared, you would solve my problem. Lord, if you really loved me, my child wouldn't be sick. My husband wouldn't have lost his job. I wouldn't have gotten kicked out of school. If you really loved me. And so we start questioning, panicking, fearing. But we learn from this story and from others that Jesus actually knows our blood pressure when we're going through hard times. If he knows the number of hairs on your head or the number of hairs not on your head, he knows your blood pressure, right? <laughs> he, he knows what raises our stress levels. God is personally and intimately aware and concerned and promises never to let us be tested beyond what we're able to bear as long as he's in the boat. The disciples need to learn this. Do you? I do. The disciples knew how much Jesus loved them. We also know how much Jesus loves us. Can you watch a baptism and not know how much Jesus loves you? No. That's why baptisms are supposed to be publicly performed in church, not in your bathtub at home or in your pool at grandpa's house. Baptisms are intended to remind you of the gospel. To, to remind you of Jesus' love for his people. Personal love. So the first way, the first response we see to this storm was panic. What was the second way? Well, it said, um, but he, in the stern, asleep on a cushion. <laughs> All right. Why was Jesus able to sleep in circumstances like this? Well, I think there's three reasons, and they're all helpful. Why was Jesus able to sleep? First, because Jesus wanted to stir up the faith and prayer of his disciples. 
He was intending to make them battle through it, make them fight, make them become urgent, which is why he isn't quick to relieve their trial or your trial. He wants this urgent prayer to surface. He wants this understanding of your desperate need for help to surface. And they surfaced here, didn't they? (laughs) When they spoke to Jesus, that was a prayer, an urgent prayer. Don't you know we're dying? Can you please help? Was their prayer? If this had been a normal storm, they wouldn't have been pushed beyond their comfort level. How about you and your storm, your history of storms? Have you recognized that they seem to get more intense with age? This is what happens. And of course, one of the largest storms we face is that storm of death, which is reserved for the end of life. But in this case, this was the greatest test, the greatest trial, the greatest storm that any of these guys have ever been through. And we learn a story here. They needed to learn to run to Jesus, to depend on him, to trust him with their lives and their good through the storm. So, do you run to Jesus as you should when storms hit? Or is that the last stop? Do you feel like He's asleep, maybe. One of my favorite Bible professors in Bible school was a man named Dr. Joe Aldrich. And he used to say this, God is a God of 11.59 and 59 seconds. Which always upsets us, doesn't it? Why can't you be a God of 10.30 or 6? Why wait till 11.59 and 59 seconds? Well, you wouldn't see your need for him if he showed up at 10, would you? Which is why. Which is why he's a God of 11.59 and 59 seconds. He shows up at the exact right time. Every time. So the first reason that Jesus slept is revealed here to stir up the faith of his disciples, the faith and prayer of his disciples. Secondly, Jesus slept because he was very exhausted. It was that day, remember, it was that day, that notorious day, when Jesus had done miracles and ministered and preached and taught for countless hours, the man was tired. This story uniquely reveals Jesus' deity and humanity within a couple sentences, side by side. (laughs) In this story, we see the union of God and man on full display. At one moment, Jesus was fast asleep because of physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion. The next moment, he was commanding the winds and the waves to be still. Within two sentences, God, man, This is the display of this miraculous union of God and man that we heard these baptism candidates agree to a central part of their understanding of who Jesus is. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is whom I'm putting my trust in. 
the, the displays of opposites in this story is stunning. Weakness and omnipotence side by side within the same sentence. And by the way, weakness and omnipotence is required for your salvation. You have to have a weak and omnipotent Savior. You have to have a Savior who's omnipotent, certainly, right, to make all happen that has happened, like God becoming man, like coming to earth, living a perfect life, and dying for the sins that he didn't commit, but that we did, like raising us up to new life, not just spiritually, but physically one day, drawing us out of the grave to live with him forever. We need that omnipotence, that all-powerfulness to be saved, no question, but we also need weakness. We need a savior who can die, right? Who can bleed and die. We need a savior who can experience the weariness of human life so that we can have a high priest that we can relate to, one who's walked this path before us. We need omnipotence and weakness to be saved. Thirdly, Jesus slept because he personally, Jesus the man slept because he personally trusted his sovereign father to watch over him. Circumstances didn't frighten Jesus because he trusted his heavenly father. He truly believed that his times were in his father's hands. Well, the same goes for us. If we truly believe that God is loving, powerful, good, and kind, guess what? We'll be able to sleep through storms. You can endure great hardships because you believe that everything God brings your way is for your good and for your joy. So you can sleep. You can rest. Instead of panic. We, we can truly believe, Psalm 31, 15, that my times are in God's hands. So, are you going to panic or are you going to rest in the storms of life? Finally, Mark wraps this up by discussing some lessons that we learn after the storm. What do we learn after the storm? Well, just reading it once, you learned that this storm revealed Jesus' true identity in a way that we haven't seen before, even in reading the Gospel of Mark. Storms reveal Jesus. To learn this, we need to realize that storms just don't happen. Storms don't have a life of their own. We know from the creation accounts in the Old Testament and the creation accounts in the New Testament that Jesus is the one who creates weather, Everything was created by him and for him and through him, we just read from Colossians, including storms, including the weather, the, the movement of wind, the fall of water from the sky. That's Jesus' category. We learn from these creation accounts that he made all things with a word. With a word. <laughs> he commanded these things into existence. Let there be light. Let there be water. Let there be 
fill in the blank, Genesis 1, with a word. He commanded these things into existence, and since he commanded them into existence, he can command them out of existence. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, he created the world and upholds it by his word. He holds the weather by his word. If Jesus wants to, he can interrupt the laws of nature with a word. In our story, here in Mark 4, Jesus exerted his divine power and prerogative to stop the wind and the rain from doing what they were designed to do. He just said this, not today. When Jesus commanded the wind and the crashing waves to stop, guess what? They stopped immediately. There was no delayed obedience like our children try to get away with. The storm didn't die down and the boat slowly come to a rocking rest. When he said, be still, it was still. The Sea of Galilee turned into glass. The only ripples that were in the water was the rainwater that it was still running off the noses of the disciples into the lake. Otherwise, it was perfect water skiing. Amazing. Imagine this scene. Put yourself in the boat just for a second. Instantaneous calm. In one second, the boat is about to sink, the waves are coming over the top, the wind is howling, the water is blowing sideways. You're certain that this is your last breath. In the very next second, you're standing there with water still dripping off your nose and eyebrows, looking at Jesus and then looking at your friends saying, what in the world just happened? Jesus happened. They knew they were dealing with someone unique at this point, didn't they? Colossians 1.16, which we read earlier, I'm going to read it again. This is what they discovered. For by him, who? Jesus. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what they learned firsthand. Jesus simply silenced the storm. Jesus' command was actually addressed to the noise of the storm. He said, be quiet. Be quiet. Wind. Waves. Hmm. And it was. Immediately. We often find ourselves in the middle of a lot of noise and we need Jesus to silence it for us. Many times that noise is coming from within ourselves. Our affections become so distracted by the noise of a storm and usually that storm is of our own making. When we fall in love with worldly things, we, 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 we get our worth, self-worth from something we experience or something someone says, that's noise. 
And that noise really gets us into trouble. So what should we do? When the noise of the storm is so loud, you, you can't hear yourself think and you certainly can't hear Jesus speak, what do you do? What did the disciples do? They ran to Jesus. They cried out for help. And he, and he quieted the storm. The noise went away. I think if we can get this into our minds and into our hearts, we'd be able to navigate the storms of life much more efficiently and effectively. If you truly, really embrace the Lord of the storm and realize that your times really are in his hands, you're going to survive the fearful times that life brings to each of us. And not just survive, but thrive in those times. Did Mark include this story of Jesus calming the storm at sea, especially for his church in Rome that he was writing to? Think about what they were going through. A little bit of chaos, huge storm, Nero was killing them. That's stormy. Yeah. Do you think the Holy Spirit maybe prompted Mark to write this and include it in this book, knowing that we one day in this congregation in Yakima at this time would be going through storms of our own? Oh, yeah. Guaranteed. So storms reveal Jesus, but they also necessarily expose us. They expose us. This is when Jesus turned to his disciples and asked two heart-numbing questions. Listen closely to these questions, my friends. Why are you so afraid? You still have no faith? Why are you so afraid? You still have no faith? This is really just one question. H haven't you seen and experienced enough yet to trust me? What else do I have to do? I've fed 5,000 out of nothing. I've healed a leper. I I've healed this man's legs who, who has never walked his entire life. You still don't believe? Help me with this. This is what Jesus was asking. The storm exposed their true depth. The disciples still lacked faith. They knew he possessed divine power. They'd seen the miracles. But when their lives were at stake is the only time they actually paid attention. When the rubber met the road for them, they faltered. If you would have asked them before the storm, hey, do you believe Jesus can heal sick people? Oh, yeah, I've seen it happen. He's great. You think Jesus can take care of people's needs? Oh, all the time. Yeah, that's old stuff for us. They, to, the, to the man would have answered it that way. It's only until their life was on the line that their faith was exposed. So Jesus took them into the storm. He took them in the storm, the greatest trial of their lives up to this point, to show them the real condition of their soul, to, to expose the weakness of their faith, and to teach them that he's the only solution to their chaos. No matter how big or small the chaos, 
He's the only solution. When we go through storms in life, our fears, wrong priorities are always exposed. Being fearful is very common, isn't it? Even among believers. You may be sitting here this morning with a bit of fear as you look around our world and see the scary stuff that's happening. My goodness, how close is it going to get? How do you think the Ukrainian Christians are dealing with their fears at this moment? Your fear may stem from something else other than international crisis. Maybe yours is a lot more personal, health concerns, financial concerns, family challenges, fears nonetheless. The winds are, are howling, aren't they? The waves are crashing. You don't have to be too observant to see that. You may even feel that your boat is close to being swamped. What are we going to do? You might ask. What should I do? In his first letter, Peter, Peter mentioned the importance of trusting Jesus with everything. Peter said this, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, <clears throat> stay with me. Do you remember where Mark, John Mark, received his information to write this gospel, to write this letter? You remember where he got the info? You remember John Mark was the pastor of the church in Rome who was suffering under Nero, who would have benefited from this story. Where did, where did John Mark get the story? From Peter, who wrote, Casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. This man was in the boat. Peter was there. When there was uncontrollable chaos, and then immediate calm, and the water was running off his nose into the lake. He was there. He gave that information to Mark. He was at that dramatic story time. He was there when that instantaneous calm became a reality. From chaos to immediate calm. From chaos to calm with a word. Be quiet, is what Jesus said. Be quiet. which is one word in the Greek. Be quiet. So from a mega storm, look at verse 37. Great windstorm, that's the word mega. Look at verse 39. In the ESV, the second to last word in the English is great. From a great mega storm to great mega calm with a word. And then I want you to look down, and you might want to circle these three words, great, great, and great. The next word, great, or mega, is found in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. Literally, they feared a great fear. They had mega fear. Mega storm, mega calm, mega fear. Why did they go back to fearing something? This is how New Testament writers uh, de describe worship 
in the Bible. Fear the Lord your God doesn't mean tremble. No, it means worship the Lord your God. And this is what's going on here. From a mega storm to mega calm to mega worship. As great or mega the storm was, their worship was greater, more mega. They feared a great fear. They had mega, mega worship because of what they learned in that setting. Their reverential fear, what we would describe as intense worship, were intense worship, exceeded their fear of the storm. Jesus changed their focus from the weather to him. From the storm to the creator of the storm. How did he do that? Like this. Be quiet. <laughs> At that moment, that moment when everything went dead quiet, dead still, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Yahweh was in the boat. Yahweh was in the boat. They knew that the one who created the universe, who created the weather, was in the boat. In Matthew's record of this story, after Jesus did what he did, after he calmed the storm, it's, Matthew said they turned to each other and then to Christ and, say, and said, You are indeed God. I think we'd respond the same way, wouldn't we? In spite of all their weakness, all their failings, all their sin, God saved them. He didn't treat them as their unbelief deserved. Aren't you thankful for that? Oh, no. He knew their faith was in the mustard seed phase, vulnerable, weak, infantile, and yet he saved them and he helped them get through it and helped them understand a big lesson along the way in what it means to follow Jesus. Trust me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Trust me. Do we? We can rely on Jesus to take us through the storms of life, even the storm of death. He's always in the boat, according to Hebrews 13. Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us. Romans 8:28, all things work together for good, all the way to heaven. Paul couldn't help himself. Paul heard this story, either from Peter or from Luke. But Paul heard this story, and this is what he wrote to the Philippian church when he was wrapping up his, his letter to them. Evidently, this is an important lesson. Philipp, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for, no, don't get anxious about any storms. But in everything, in every storm, by prayer and supplication, there's what the disciples did. Prayer and supplication, Paul throws in with thanksgiving. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, every storm of life, pray and plead with God with thanksgiving. Why with thanksgiving? Why did Paul add that? Because of what storms accomplish. 
What do they accomplish? What does James 1 say? The testing of your faith produces all this stuff. All this Christ-likeness. And so Paul can say, with thanksgiving. You're becoming like Jesus in all of this. It's okay. The Lord is teaching you to trust him, to follow him. Let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Hmm, what a wonderful promise. So Jesus simply asked his disciples, why are you so afraid? I know what I'd say, but the question remains powerful. Why am I afraid when I have a God like this in the boat? Have I not sufficiently, Jesus would ask, revealed my love to you, my care for you, my goodwill towards you? Do you believe that I am God and have a purpose for your life and that purpose requires you to go through these kind of storms? Do you believe that my times or your times are in my hands? Why are you so afraid? I think we need to learn this lesson over and over and over again, don't we? All this, of course, had a great impact on everybody in the boat. Their fear of circumstances was because they lacked a fear of God. But once they witnessed the power of Jesus, the fear of their circumstances disappeared. Amazing. We're going to sing a song to end our service that you're familiar with. You might even know the story behind the song. It's called It Is Well With My Soul, written by Horatio Spafford. He was an American, uh, or he was in America, rather. He was, in, he was English, but he was in America on a ministry trip. Uh, and he sent a letter to his wife in England and asked her to bring their four daughters to America to join him on this ministry trip. And on her way to America across the Atlantic, they ran into a storm. The boat they were on sank. All four of his daughters died, drowned in the Atlantic Ocean. And when sailing back to England, Horatio Spafford, to grieve with his wife, the captain of that boat on the way back to England alerted Horatio of the exact spot of where that last ship went down and where his daughters died. And it was in that moment, at that spot, where Horatio wrote the song we're going to sing. Listen to the words as you sing them and see if the truths there are not something that you can embrace. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this amazing story in Mark 4 that reveals our heart and more importantly reveals Christ to us. Well, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for us, your commitment to our spiritual growth and our faith. Help us learn to be trusting in storms. Help us believe that even in the midst of pain and heartache, that you care deeply for each of us. Bless us now as we close our song, thinking about your goodness and grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.